I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 170. And right off the bat, we got big news. Huge. Huge. Patreon. No, I'm just kidding. Good try. (laughs) Hey, do y'all remember this time of year, circa 2019, we went to the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival? Yes. Did you just did you just cup your hand to do the exact same thing? Yes, in the I mic? literally was about to be like, yes, we do. Cool. Okay. Well, same. <laughs> well, it's happening again, and it's in like two weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, pure Donna and Carrie style. We're going in, you know, two weeks. <laughs> Ta-da! <Surprise. laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so can y'all make it? We want y'all there. We want to see you. We want to, like, long distance hug y'all? Question mark? If you're comfortable with it. It's in Kansas City this year, and it's going to be July 3rd and 4th. Well, technically the 2nd through the 4th, but I think that the 2nd is just podcasters, like, setting up and stuff. So, really, the event is, like, the 3rd and the 4th. No one wants to see us sweat our ass off. You know what I mean? Right. But, honestly, we don't have a lot of details because this just happened, like, this week. That the hosts of the event met with the hotel and all and got all the shit worked out and things that we don't understand because we're not good planners. And so, ta-da! But we do know Creep Mom is going. And Creep Niece. Yep, so if y'all want to see them, too. And Colby. And Colby. Creepy Colby. <laughs> you know, if he listens to this, his butthole is going to clench that people know he's going. <laughs> but we're thinking that it's going to be set up kind of like it was two years ago when we went, which it was a lot of fun. Creep Mom met us there two years ago when we went. And it's kind of like expo style. There's going to be other podcasters there. So you get to go around to the different tables and meet the podcasters, get some different swag, stickers and such. Free shit. I love that. I know. Creep Mom, remember she went down to every single table and got us both like a bag of shit. Yes. Oh my God. I love free shit. I used to go to expos all the time. Like literally all of those stickers that she got me are on Colby's lunchbox. And people are like, where'd you get that sticker, man? Where'd you get that sticker, man? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I love that. But we know that not everyone can afford to go to the podcast festival. So we are going to have a meetup, like a little small meetup sometime. Again, we're not great planners. So, you know, uh, We'll be posting that information in the Facebook group. Yeah. So if you're not in the Facebook group and you're going to this event. Or you live, you know, in Kansas City, driving distance, all the things, join. So you can be on the lookout for the day before when we're like, oh, yeah, this is where we're going to have the meetup. Yeah. We'll also put it, you know, in Discord and all the all the things. Yeah. Creep Mom probably will because she's better at it. She's like, do y'all need me to do this? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Actually, she's like, already did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. We'll put it on Instagram and stuff, too, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we got y'all covered. Maybe. Sort of. Kind of. But you know who's got us covered? Patreoners! So, thank you so much, Carol J. from Oregon. Liz O. from Ohio. Okay. No. Just kidding. <laughs> Not you, Liz. Just the way she said it. We love you, Liz. Thanks for joining. <laughs> it's her and her 
mouth. Thank you so <laughs> You know what? I've never had a complaint. Until today. Okay. Anyway, thank you so much, Angela V. from Illinois. Autumn H. from Alabama. Rosanna S. from California. Heather R. from the UK. Megan P. from Illinois. Noel D. from Washington. <laughs> Jesus. Kelsey S. from Kentucky. And Callie T. from California. Thank you all so much for joining Patreon. We really do appreciate it because you joining Patreon makes us go into the True Crime Podcast Festival a possibility. Because without you, we wouldn't be able to go. And, you know, this whole shebang. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you want an episode shout out and all the extra bonus content that they're getting, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. All right. This week, I'm focusing on a place called Corpsewood Manor. But this is really about a love story between two men, Charles Scudder and Joseph Odom. And sadly, they were not only victims of a horrible crime. They were victims of a society built on bigotry and fear and intolerance of anything different. Okay, so first, let's start with Charles Scudder. He was an amazingly smart man. He was a Libra born on October 6, 1926. And let me just say, you know, most things say Libras really love aesthetics. Well, Charles did, like 100. Anyway, we'll get to that. But he had multiple degrees in zoology, chemistry, one in languages, and then he furthered his education and obtained his PhD in pharmacology. So like seriously, he was a jack of all trades, master of all. Throughout his adulthood, he did have two marriages, and during his second one, he became a father to four sons. And sadly, his youngest son passed away a little bit later. In the late 1950s, Charles decided that he needed help in his household. He lived in this mansion in Chicago's West Side. It was designed by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright in 1904, so in its heyday was probably amazing, but it was definitely past its prime, was aging, needed some TLC, and Charles was a busy, busy man. So he befriended this man by chance, like by happenstance, named Joseph Odom. It was when he went into a bookstore looking for a book, duh, that's why you go to one, but he went in, asked Joseph for a book, and something just connected with them. And their lives forever changed that day. Joseph was 12 years younger than Charles, and he wasn't book smart like Charles. But what he lacked in book smart, he made up with life experience. Joseph only completed the fifth grade, and then he dropped out. And he also had a not-so-clean record. Definitely had some run-ins with the law, but Charles and Joseph were equal opposites. Charles then hired him to be a cook and a housekeeper, but he became so much more over the years. And Charles was the first to defend Joseph anytime someone would talk about him, saying, you know, he learned more about life 
than I did in all of my studies. You know, he's smarter than I am with all of my degrees. You know, so it was never, Charles never felt better than Joseph. Because he's not. Right. So Charles was a pharmacology professor at Loyola University in Chicago. He also was an assistant director at a medical research lab. And also just a little tidbit here. Some of the medical research has some stuff to do with government-grade LSD inches. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm, because it was that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, over the years, Charles just tired of the urban life, the nine-to-five grind. He said his students were less interested in learning and more interested in being a pain in his ass, basically. The university's politics and everything was getting to him. Because Charles was someone who marched to the beat of his own drum. He would dye his hair purple or blue. He had a pet monkey. You know, he was just different. Which he sounds cool as fuck to me. But anyway, he was tired of it. You know I would watch his TikToks with that fucking pet monkey. Oh, I know. Oh my God. He was tired of owing things to people that he felt he shouldn't. Like light bills, gas bills, water bills, all these bills for shit. He just felt helpless and hopeless. Like he would always owe these bills and he didn't want to. Well, duh, nobody wants to. Yeah, but it is like kind of daunting. When I read that and I was just like, you're never going to just be. Nope. It was daunting to think of that. I was, ugh. I don't know. It just, that resonated with me on that one. I mean, I would never do what he does. But, ooh, I was just like, never thought about it that way. So thank you for that. I don't need to hang around amazingly smart people because they put the shit in my brain. And then I'm like, but I can't do what you do. I need to live in my ignorant bliss. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can't do the voodoo that they do? Mm-mm. Remember that song? The voodoo mm-hmm. that you do. <laughs> okay, So this is something him and Joseph would talk about and just discuss what they would yearn for. And they knew that they wanted to go on a soul-searching adventure, but it would be for the rest of their lives. So they started to plan it. They wanted somewhere with four seasons, but not too cold of a winter. But it needed to have a lot of wood for heating, cooking, etc. You know, essential shit like that. And like I mentioned, Charles was, you know, brilliant. So he started looking over geological survey maps and shit of the South and started to inquire about land for sale. He found 40 acres that was surrounded by national forest land and he could afford it if he sold his house, cashed in his retirement fund and everything. Oh my God. So he drove to Georgia where the land was. There, he just became enamored with what he saw. He wrote in an article in Mother Earth News that he saw hummingbirds, butterflies, bobcats, great oaks, fungi, and rolling mountain woodland. And he was hooked. He then returned to Chicago, continued to work, but he bought the land then proceeded to have a well dug before they made the trek down to Georgia. Because, you know, no running water there. It's in the middle of a forest, literally. 
and Charles and Joseph got to work planning their house. Charles bought a little camper and a Jeep to better handle the terrain. Their plan was to live in the camper while they built their house, and Charles seriously read a book, learned how to build a house, and they were going to do it. So Charles and Joseph were basically like you and me, but like genius level you and me, like <laughs> yes. brains and bronze, but like actual like genius level. Yeah. Like he read and actually understood what he read. You know how people like give people um, who are really smart the Rubik's Cube? I just want to give him like an Ikea instruction thing and be like, how long does this take? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, do it. Go. Okay, so in 1976, on Charles' 50th birthday, he resigned from his job, auctioned off all of his possessions that he didn't want, and all the other stuff in preparation for him, Joseph, and their two English mastiffs to leave for what he called their kingdom in Chattooga County, Georgia. Oh, but I will say, as parting gifts to himself... Charles took two human skulls from his office and some vials of that government LSD. Oh. But, you know, like, don't we all take stuff from offices that we, like, jobs we quit? Because I really think I took an old calculator from mine. Like, an old, old fucking desk calculator. Yeah, but, like, people usually take, like, staplers and shit. Not LSD. I mean, it was government-grade LSD. I would take it, too. Yeah, to prove that Operation Stapler existed. <laughs> what was it? Clothespin? No, <laughs> paper, paper clip. clip. <laughs> but that's not it. That was the alien stuff. Yeah, MK Ultra, And also from his coworkers and friends back in Chicago and stuff, they said, like, he didn't do drugs and all of that. So he might have just taken it to continue doing studies or just to have it mm-hmm. as that i don't know or to partake in it because fuck he's gonna be out in the middle of the woods who cares yeah i mean what they gonna do fire you <laughs> right and like what are they gonna say hey um we're gonna arrest you because see the government made this drug um that they're giving in really almost lethal doses to people And it's not right that you take it. Yeah. I mean, it's not right that anybody takes it because it's wrong, but it's really not right that you take it, okay? (laughs) Yeah, so, mm. But back to Charles and Joseph. The story goes that the two men and their dogs, they were traveling to their new home off the grid, and there was this ice storm going on, which was totally uncommon for Georgia. So they had to pull over on the side of the road leading up to their land. And in the morning when the storm had passed, they saw a horse that was dead on the side of the road. That sounds like a sitcom, by the way. Two men and their dogs. (laughs) And many people said that they would take this as an omen and be like, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea. And like in horror movies, you know, where you know the outcome's going to be bad, but the main characters don't, you know, like you would be like, oh, shit. It's going to be bad. Right. Look at the horse. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, oh, how random. And they just drive on to the house, you know, and you're like, oh, God. Well, Joseph and Charles, 
they just had that morbid kind of sense of humor, you know, like we do. And they ended up naming the road that was their road, Dead Horse Road. And I love that. I mean, I don't know. I just, that's hilarious to me. You know what it reminds me of? What? When we got um, our first GPS and we were going down this road called Dito Road. <laughs> but it's like, like the end of it is like E-A-U-X. Yeah, like the Cajun spelling. Yeah. And um, the GPS called it Dead Duck Road. <laughs> oh, God. Well, like I mentioned before, they were going to build their dream house. And they were going to build it by hand and basically just read how to be a contractor and shit. And they did the damn thing, but like did it legit. And I don't understand how they did it without YouTube. How, how, where, where did they live in the meantime? Well, I'm going to tell you. It took them two years total. What? One year for each floor of the house. But they completed it. 45,000 bricks were laid by hand. Sheesh. But while they did that, they lived in that camper. Okay, okay, okay. Charles said that they had their own elegant mini castle. And they named it Corpsewood Manor. I mean, you know, as you would with the Dead Horse Road. Right. Well, because when they finally finished construction, it was fall. So all the trees around them were bare. So, corpse wood. And I'm like, I swear to God, I would have been friends with these people. Like, honestly, I think they get me at my core and I get them. Also, I've been like, um, can you name our podcast? We'd still be a Paranormal Chicks. I know, because they would get it. And I thought of Creep Mom because Charles loved the Adams family. And back in Chicago, he had decorated his mansion with discarded theatrical props and other macabre inspired things well this house was no different he nailed a sign on the dead horse road that said beware of the thing which was kind of a nod to the adams family and he had gargoyles on the roof which made me again think of creep mom and on the gazebo that they built but he painted them pink which hello spooky and pink i am here for it sign me up that is me But if all of that didn't keep intruders away, their two mastiffs were sure to deter someone. Their names were Beelzebub and Arseneth. You know, the demon. And the other one was named after an H.P. Lovecraft character. I'm not familiar with it, but he was a big-time science fiction writer. But the rumor was that not only did the dogs guard the house, but... Charles had summoned a real demon to prowl the woods and guard them as well. And they had some good years there. They lived off the land. Joseph had his rose garden. That was his pride and joy, second only to the love of his life, Charles. Joseph also got to cook on a wood stove, something he always told Charles he dreamed of doing. They had their own little vineyard and just made their own wine, they were beekeepers, and not only used the honey, but the wax for the candles because they didn't have electricity, because again, remember, he didn't want bills ever again, and they didn't have bills ever again. Yeah, but they also didn't have fucking electricity ever again. (laughs) I 
or running water ever again <laughs> or central air in Georgia ever again. I know. That's why I said I could never do what he did. So that's why I'm going to pay those bills. Mm-hmm. But it made me think. And I wish I would have just been blissfully ignorant. But now I know. But they lived each day however they wanted. Tended to their land. Loving on each other. Their dogs. Charles played the harp on the gazebo or the sun deck. And this harp, y'all, it was encrusted in gold. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. I fucking love Charles. I told you Charles is Libra 100. He made art. He was really into stained glass and had several pieces he did himself all around the house. There was a self-portrait that was kind of morbid, which we'll get into a little later. And then there was one of Baphomet, who's basically like a Church of Satan idol. I know I'm like really dumbing that down. I know. I was reading more about it and it said that Baphomet... Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Is kind of like yin and yang. Like equal opposites of the world. And that it represents the perfect and ideal human. And like the two finger salute represents as above, so below. Mm. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I just, I really like that. How many of y'all just held up two fingers? Because I totally did. <laughs> to be like, oh, you hold up two fingers and there's two pointing up and two pointing down. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, because I did. Well, sadly, for the most part, in rural Georgia, they were misunderstood. Because the thing about it was, not only was the name shocking to people when they heard it, and then the decor, but they were outwardly in a homosexual relationship when that was definitely not okay and not the norm. And... Mm -hmm. It was just on the edge of everything. Right before the AIDS epidemic, right before... It was just when everyone was scared of everything. They would just turn on people, you know? If anything was different, they would turn on you because they were scared. Well, Charles was a Satanist. If you ask him his religion, he would proudly tell you that. But people heard that and would label them as, quote, queer devil worshipers. And honestly, Joseph was Catholic. Joseph was devout Catholic, actually. But he accepted every part of Charles because he understood what a Satanist was and believed. It wasn't them being a devil worshiper. It had nothing to do with that at all, which sadly society still doesn't understand today. Charles was an atheist who chose to celebrate the world's pleasures that he felt and other Satanists feel are denied by humans in other Abrahamic religions. So, you know, I mean, it's live your life, have fun, do what you want to do, put yourself first, you know, all of these things, but be a good person. All of this, and you could see that in Charles, he was very welcoming, very everything, but hello, they packed up because this is what they wanted to do. You know, they left their life for the pursuit of their happiness. 
which was completely against the norm. And I don't know, like, it's so hard because even now, like, I was looking up on the Church of Satan and I was like, oh gosh, like typing it in. And I was like, why? Why am I so like that? It's just because of how I'm brought up. And I even know, like, I'm not uneducated about it, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just, once there's a stigma, it's so hard to break it. Yeah. Anyway. But, like I mentioned before, he loved the occult. He loved gothic decor, which, I mean, same. But he also loved pink and bright colors. And, again, same. He loved the earth and everything. Not same. <laughs> no, no, no. Not same. He would say, like, oh, I hear the whippoorwills and all of And I'm like, no, mm-mm. No, no, no. <laughs> like, mm-mm. I don't want to sit outside and hear the frogs and crickets and all of that. No. Do you? Sometimes. No. Usually that means the frogs are too close. And if a frog jumps on me, I'm done. Well, I don't want them on me, but sometimes I like to listen to them. Mm-mm. There ain't nothing I like about a frog. Nothing. But here's the thing. You don't have to be one thing. You don't have to fit into one category because we're fucking people. But people were scared of that house because of the gargoyles. He had painted pentagrams on the house. He had painted pentagrams on their Jeep. You know, and so everyone was like, ooh, the devil worshippers. Ooh, like I said, the queer devil worshippers. But not everyone was scared. They did make friends with people, and they had some guests over often. There was even a wedding in Joseph's Rose Garden once. Some of their closest friends that they made in Chattooga County was an older nudist, a group of some motorcyclists, there was a young couple with children, and they all loved coming over. They were all different, and they all loved coming over, drinking the wine that the men made, and they would even bring fruit for it so they would have different flavors. And just listening to Charles pluck away on the harp, you know, listening to Joseph's life adventures and just sharing their life because they were all different, but they all felt accepted there. So they would hang out on the gazebo and sometimes go to the pink room. The pink room was on the third floor of their chicken coop. Yes, a three-story chicken coop. On the first floor, they had chickens and their feed. Then on the second floor, they had, like, canned food storage. Then on the third that you had to enter via Joey Potter Dawson Creek style on a ladder, there is the pink room. And this was their freedom freaky room. Like, one of their friends had given them some leftover pink paint, so they used it with this room. There were some mattresses, a space heater, and not much else. Some reports say that there were sex toys and some porn stuff, so this was like a pink pleasure palace, which again, I'm here for. But most of their friends say that they had this room because they didn't like strangers or a lot of people going into their main house. That they liked to keep that house just for them. And that if people had too much to drink, they would have a place to sleep. But they did have some stuff going on there. You know what I mean? It was a mixture of both, for sure. 
Also, it was in the 70s, early 80s, so teens would do the whole ride-around thing, ain't got nothing to do. So some who had heard about the devil worshippers, they would drive up to see the house. But when they would get to the end of that dead-end road and see the brick house, they would often be greeted by Charles. He would offer them some wine or whatever. Well, one time, there was this guy on the land, and he was 17 years old, and his name was Kenneth Avery Brock, but he went by Avery. He was hunting, and Charles saw him, and since it's private property, you know, he had 40 acres around there, Avery thought he was in trouble, but Charles was like, nah, go for it. Cool, cool, cool. You like hunting? You go for it. So Avery did, and he started to return often. Hunting turned into conversation, and that turned into a glass or two of their wine, and word in the woods was some consensual sexual encounters in the pink room. And I'm not saying it's right because he was 17 and they were much older, but I don't know the age of consent in Georgia, but I'm thinking it was like 15 or 16. Also, we don't know if that's true. Not sure, but Avery did say it, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's just like... Yeah. Allegedly. Yes. So, one night, Avery told his roommate... 30-year-old Samuel Tony West, who went by Tony, about the devil worshippers on the hill. And let me just stop right here, because they lived in, like, this dilapidated trailer. And I don't know how they knew each other. I believe that Avery had been kicked out of his house by his dad. And he was living on the street before he met Tony. Tony was known by most as a bad seed. He had a very blemished past, but it all seemed to start from a tragic accident when he was 13. He was playing with a loaded gun and accidentally shot and killed his two-year-old nephew. <gasps> he never really got over that. He started self-medicating and continued to make bad decisions and take others with him in his downward spiral. And now I'm not blaming everything on him. But I don't know what kind of situation it was. If any type of grooming was happening there, I'm not saying sexual. I'm saying like criminal-wise or anything because Tony was 30 and Avery was 17 and very like impressionable, I think, because it seemed like he was looking for that male mm -hmm. relationship. Like he latched on to Corpsewood because of that. You know what I mean? Because he was kicked out of his house. You like, know what I literally mean? literally anyone of any age and authority that would pay him any attention. Right. This is how I think it kind of went down because there's multiple different scenarios and Tony and Avery kind of flip-flopped on what they said and who knows what really happened. I mean, they know what really happened, but we'll never know. Okay? But they were chilling one night and... Avery had again told Tony about the, quote, queer devil worshippers up on the hill. And he's like, man, this house is a mansion. They are living like kings. They're super cool. You know, like they trust me. They really trust me. They like me a lot. You know, and like he started like, you know, feeling, feeling Himself. important. Yeah. But feeling important. Like. Do you have friends like this? No. Cool, cool, cool. But I do. You know, whatever. At first, he was trying to impress Tony, I think. 
And then, yeah, he started feeling himself. And he slipped, I think. I think they were planning, they were going to plan something anyway, but it it changed when he slipped and said that they had something sexual. That's really what I think. So when I say word in the woods, I really think something went down. I saw different things where it was like oral or whatever, but it was consensual. But when he said that, Tony got pissed and he was like, they took advantage of you. They did all of this. And so he riled him up and he was like, oh my God, they did. Whole, you know, like, holy shit. Basically, they assaulted me. You know, all of this. So like he, Tony twisted Avery right up and got him on his side, fueled with hate. So their whole plan was to rob Corpsewood Manor. Because Tony, when Avery's going through it, you know Tony is like, woe is Tony, life's not fair. These two gay guys are living living in hog heaven when we're living in an, in an abandoned trailer. Like, why do these people get to live like kings and we're having to live like this? We're doing everything right, um, sir, sir. But okay. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. you know, that's how people think and whatever. I think that's that was the plan. And that was what the plan was going to be until... Avery said that and then he couldn't unsay it and then Tony twisted it all up and got him riled up in the other way and it became something much worse. It said that Avery had went over there one last time to hang out and he asked if he could go into the house instead of the guest house which again they called the pink room and they didn't allow him to. They you know said just Stay in the guest house. Like, let's just chill out here. That's what we do. So, you know, he was trying to scout out everything. That's what he was trying to do. But it didn't matter that they didn't work out all the kinks. The time had come. And on the night of December 12th, 1982, Tony and Avery were going to go through with their plan. But you know how I said Tony liked to take people down with him? Well, Tony's nephew, Joey Wells, He was getting ready for his first date with Teresa Hudgens. And as luck would have it, his car wouldn't start. So good old Uncle Tony said, no problemo. Me and Avery, we'll drive y'all around. And we know this really cool place that we can all hang out. So Joey's like, fuck yeah, cool. So they go pick up Teresa. She's super uneasy about this whole thing. But she's coming out of a rocky relationship and She's excited about Joey, and she thinks he's super cute. She doesn't want to mess it up already, so she agreed to this ride-along, even if it's not what they had already planned, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, almost as soon as Teresa got into the truck, she regretted it. They got the party started by huffing something called Toodaloo. It's a combo of alcohol, paint thinner, and glue. Oh, my God. And I don't know why it's called that, but, like, if you're saying goodbye to your life forever, like, toodaloo, R.I.P. Yeah. I don't know. I think this was the Tide Pods of the 80s. Anyway, they tell Teresa and Joey that they were going to Corpsewood, and Teresa's pretty sheltered, so she was like, what? And they're like, they are devil worshippers, but they cool. Like, it's cool, 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 cool. You'll like it. And she's like, in the woods? Uh, okay. 
But they get there and Charles comes out, takes them up to the pink room and they're just drinking and chilling. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. Nothing's going on. Like, okay, this is cool. So her and Joey were on one mattress in a corner and Charles, Tony, and Avery were on another in another corner. And Joseph was preparing dinner and like, you know, cleaning up from the cooking and stuff like that. So the guys were still huffing the toodaloo. So Avery all of a sudden was like, oh, let me go get some more toot toot. And he was like, I'll be right back. Well, then when he came back, he had a rifle instead. And I think Charles is just so me in this moment. He just kind of giggled and was like, bang, bang. And, you know, just kind of joking, just trying to diffuse the weirdness of that situation. Just kind of trying to fill the void. Like, uh, you went to get some drugs for y'all, but now you have a rifle. Like, are you really high? Like, I'm not that drunk. Are you, you know what I mean? What's going on? Yeah. But before he could defuse any situation, Avery handed the gun to Tony and pulled a knife from his boot and pressed it to Charles's neck. Avery then demanded that Charles tell him where all the money's hidden. Avery pushed Charles down on the mattress and used the knife to shred the sheets into strips so he could tie him up. The whole time, Charles is trying to reassure Joey and Teresa everything's going to be okay and just make sure they're all right. And that just shows, like, what a good guy he was. You know, and Teresa even said, like, don't worry about us. Like, you try to live. Like, just tell them what they want to know. So then Tony tossed the gun back to Avery, and he knew what to do. He said, quote, I'll go down and get rid of that man and the dogs. Later in Teresa's testimony, she said that there were four or five shots. Then Avery ran back up, and he said that he had killed the dogs and the man. And when he said that, Charles let out sobs and painful moans. Oh, Yeah. They had Charles at both knife and gunpoint at this time. They forced him into the main house, demanding him to show them where they hid their money. He told them that they didn't have any money, nothing. That, yes, he did have a small inheritance, but that was all spent building this house. They lived off the land. Like, that was the whole thing. They were poor. They didn't need money because they didn't, they didn't use money. I want to say I read somewhere that they lived off of $200 a month. Jesus. But what did they need money for, period, though? It would be, like, flour to make, like, pancakes and others, you know what I mean? Like, stuff like that. Just shit they wanted. Yeah. But they didn't believe him. And they just kept demanding him answer them. Beating on Charles to answer them. But he was so focused on getting to Joseph. He was struggling to break free. To get to where Joseph was lying lifelessly on the floor. Halfway in the kitchen and half in the dining room. He had probably been setting the table when he was shot four times in the face. The two dogs had been shot as they slept by the wood-burning stove. Oh. I know. Tony yelled for Charles to stop as he walked towards Joseph, sobbing. But Charles didn't. He couldn't. Joseph was the love of his life. He was his life. That's when Charles was first shot in the head. 
Teresa said that he was shot between his eyes, and blood trickled down his nose and his mouth. But he never made a sound until he looked over at her and asked if she was all right. She said that that moment has stayed with her forever. Charles's final words would haunt everyone, though. He softly said, I ask for this, before he was shot in the head four more times at point-blank range. What does that mean? Because he let them in. He moved to the South. He, you know, all of the things. He just took on all the responsibility that it wasn't his fault. You know, it wasn't. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, that's why I guess I didn't understand. Because I'm like, what do you mean? You didn't, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. It makes me so sad that he died believing that, though. Yeah. That he was the reason that his two dogs and the love of his life were dead. And it's not him. Not at all. Well, then Tony and Avery tore the inside of the house apart, looking for treasure, basically. But they didn't find anything. They wanted to take the gold heart, but it was too big and too heavy So all they got out of the double homicide that they just did were nickels and dimes. Wow. Some jewelry, a gold-plated dagger, and then they took Charles's Jeep as their escape vehicle because their truck wouldn't start. Because Teresa and Joey had tried to leave before the killings even started, and it wouldn't start. But it's actually a really good thing. That it wouldn't start, which I'll explain a little bit later. They threatened to kill Joey and Teresa if they went to the police or told anyone, you know, and they dropped them off at Joey's mom's house. Then Avery and Tony headed west. They made it just outside of Vicksburg, Mississippi at a rest stop where they decided they needed to ditch the Jeep and get another car. So they carjacked a Navy lieutenant named Kirby Phelps, and, oh yeah, mm, they killed him too. (gasps) Didn't need to, but, you know, just did. On December 16th, Raymond Williams, a friend of Joseph and Charles, went to their home to tell them about a passing of a mutual friend. When he got there, he knew something was up. When he went, like, inside, he saw bullet holes in the kitchen door. So he left, called the sheriff's office, Just so happens, on that same day, Teresa went to the police and told them what she had witnessed because she was basically being held against her will at Joey's mom's house. Avery returned to Georgia and turned himself in to the police on December 20th. Tony took a little bit longer, but he did turn himself in to authorities in Chattanooga, Tennessee on December 25th. There was a trial, and Avery and Tony were both found guilty. Avery was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences, and Tony was sentenced to death by electric chair, but that was overturned, and so it was just, you know, a life sentence instead. They're both still currently serving. But okay, so you would think since Joseph and Charles were brutally murdered for no reason— They wouldn't have been the ones on trial, but they were. The media went wild with the case of the gay devil worshippers. 
When the police investigated the crime scene, they found the two human skulls that Charles had taken from his work. They found the LSD. They found books on the occult. They found homosexual pornography. Like, can we just call it porn? Mm, You know, I I mean, because there's all different kinds of porn. We don't specify every single kind of porn when we talk about any other kind of porn. Like, if we say, like, you know, oh, they had... Just, other kind of pornography, we just say they had other pornography. Like what? Did they have BBW? Did they have, I don't know. Just what they deem obscene. I know, but, but that's what I'm saying. No, so I know. Like, let's just say they had fucking porn. Uh-huh. They only would say they had homosexual pornography or they had kitty porn. Those are the only ones. Or lesbian porn. Yeah. Those are the only ones that Which I know, homosexual porn. You know what I mean. Yeah. Those are the only ones that they're going to say, you know. Well, somehow that all got leaked out to the media, you know? Of course it did. Uh Uh-huh. The thing is, the sheriff at the time had tried to find ways to pin charges against them in the past just because they were different. But he couldn't because uh, nothing was wrong. They did nothing wrong. Also, it was right at the start of the satanic panic. So they became big names in that whole mess, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah. And their name was being dragged through the mud and being accused of a lot of shit that had nothing to do with them. They never lured kids to the woods. They never did anything, you know? They never did anything but welcome someone in a friendly way. The defense attorney even blamed them for lacing Avery and Tony's wine with LSD And that's why Tony and Avery went on their rampage, victim blaming 101. But they tested the wine. Nothing was in it. And Teresa drank the wine and didn't have the same reaction. You know. Also, that would have been out of their system by the time they got to Mississippi. And they still killed that man for no reason. So there's that. Then the defense attorney doubled down on the LSD drugging and said that the motive behind it was because he had a motive because he was a homosexual. What? Right? He's just saying that Charles, the reason why Charles did what he did was because he was homosexual. Like, sir, your point? What? I don't even understand. Like, to have sex with them. He wanted yeah. to have sex, so he had to drug them. Yeah, I know. But, like, it's like... <laughs> okay. I... Dumb. The audacity of everyone in this. Like, what the fuck? But because they are idiots, they sang like little birds and confessed that they had planned it a few days in advance. So everything of the whole LSD laced wine theory went out the window. Also, during Tony's confession, he was very matter-of-fact about everything. And he said, and I quote, All I can say is that they were devils and I killed them and that's how I feel about it. You see? (laughs) I mean, what the fuck? Uh, Right? But about Teresa, I'm very glad that she was there. Like, I hate that for her and that she'll never forget it. But if she didn't come forward, no one would have believed anything about why they were killed, how they were killed, you know, nothing good about them. But she was like, no, no, no. Like, they were really nice and... They just decided to do this. You know, like, she pretty much was like, no, they, they, nothing happened like that. You know? Yeah. Like, 
It's like, I could just picture it like a Saturday Night Live sketch. And it's like, but they were homosexuals. And it's like, and? You know, Teresa's like, and, yeah, what? You know, like, huh? They were devil worshippers. What? We were all just talking. And then the guys did the bad thing. They killed them. They're the criminals. But the other people were homosexuals. Um... Yes, but they're dead now because the other people murdered them. You know, like, what the fuck? And honestly, they probably wouldn't have gotten life sentences had they not killed the man in Mississippi. See, this should have been a hate crime. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So, a small private funeral was held at Corpsewood where Joseph's ashes were scattered in the rose garden that he loved so much. Charles's ashes were taken back to Wisconsin, where he was born, by his sister Janet Scudder Arnold, where they were buried in their family plot. So, bringing it back to that painting I talked about that was morbid, and I was like, I'll bring that up later. Well, it was a self-portrait of Charles, with five gunshots in his head and a gag in his mouth, And he told a friend of theirs that that was how he was going to die. But remember, he didn't let everyone in his house. So not everyone would know this. And definitely not Avery. So it was like definitely a premonition. And where he died, that painting was nearby. Some people said that the I ask for this. Was because of the painting. Yeah, could have been because of the painting. Gotcha. Well, a fire ruined the chicken coop in the pink room on January 5th, 1983. And soon the same fate happened to Corpsewood Manor, which is definitely vandalism because uh, there's no electricity out there. I literally was just about to say, how in the fuck was there a fire? No electricity and no one cooking on the wood-burning stove. Right, and no one to light the candles. You know, um, yeah. So now there's just some brick ruins of a once castle in the wood where love was grown and wine was poured. People who visit the land say that you can feel sadness. Sometimes they report gunshots and other times harp music playing. Others have seen glowing eyes of what they believe to belong to one of the mastiffs. And sometimes that's accompanied by dogs barking. Like the sound of a dog barking, but there's no dog. There's an urban legend around Corpsewood about people who took bricks from the place. They said that, you know, they would take a brick as a souvenir, but then soon after they would have bad luck or, you know, like health-wise, money-wise, whatever. So then they would return it, you know, just in case it would help. That kind of thing. A guy on Reddit said that his mother's ex-boyfriend, Rick, said that him and his friends were drunk off their asses one night and needed to pee. So it's in the middle of nowhere, so they were like, okay, here's a good place on the side of the road. Well, it was by Dead Horse Road. He said Rick, the mom's ex-boyfriend, told him that him and another dude were standing there peeing and saw a pair of glowing green eyes that just suddenly approached them in the darkness. And they loomed like... Seven to eight feet tall. So Rick was just in shock. 
But the other guy was like, okay, jumped back in the truck. Rick was still peeing, but the other guy dragged him back into the vehicle, too. So they sped away and, you know, lived to tell another tale. And that could be attributed to the dogs or the demon that supposedly they had protecting their land. Another tale that was attributed to the demon was of a man who was hunting and went missing. When people searched, all they found was his face that had been nailed to a tree. And they say now you can spot him sometimes wandering the woods in overalls, him with his exposed skull just searching for his face. That was what? Yeah. What's that have to do with anything? Because it's in the woods and they're saying he trespassed. I don't know. And they're saying the demon got him. Oh, Lord. Yes. But in this, let's just remember that the real monsters were actually real and they're still serving time. And also everyone who jumped on the bandwagon of discounting Joseph and Charles as victims because they were gay and of a different belief system than others. I like to think that it would be different now, but I think that the satanic aspect of it would still be as sensationalized now as it was then. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and the sex stuff. If they had that pink room and it really did have pornography, S&M stuff, whatever, it would still be sensationalized. And it's like, that's not bad. Like, what the fuck? You know what had mm, lots of money and people went and saw it? Fifty Shades of Grey. You know what they had? A pleasure room. It was just red. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, legit, it was a red room. So it's just like, oh, I can't think of the case, but it was a woman who was murdered and it was in like suburbia and everyone was floored because this mom and this wife was like an online cam girl. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. I can't remember what it was. And it was on a, um episode of Disappeared on ID. They were floored, and they were just like, I didn't even know who I was living by. I let my children play with her children. And it's like, um, okay, you know, like, what the actual fuck? Well, until we actually normalize and legalize sex work and take the seedy human trafficking aspect out of it, people are going to be like that. Oh, for sure. But most of the time, especially on a case-by-case basis, like with her, she was her own boss. This was her own job. And so it was just a stigma of society. It wasn't because, oh, absolutely. Oh, well, people get human trafficked. No, no, no. And that's that's, why. No, no, no. I'm saying like, so that it becomes more normalized is what I'm saying. Like, because people just like, oh my God. No, no, no. I'm not saying they're like, oh my God, because it's like people get human trafficked because of it. I'm saying it's like, until we can get it like porn. Like people now are more like, like everybody watches porn. We have you porn and Pornhub and all yeah. that. And so it's way more normalized. But even but that's what she was doing. But I'm saying it's still way more normalized now 
than it was like back in the day. But it, this was a recent thing. But a cam girl is still a new thing. The people you know being quote unquote porn stars is a new thing. But it's it's so stupid. You know, it's like yeah. you always had porn and it was like, you know, you go to the local video store and you get a video. And it's like some unknown actor and actress or whatever. But now it's like it is the person next door and people are because it's becoming more normalized, people are having to like retrain their brains basically. Because they've always, it's always been like, oh, so taboo. Oh my God. You know, even though they've been doing it this whole fucking time. But it's like now that it's people they know, they're like, oh shit. Like I fucking know them. You know? I'm not saying it's fucking right. That's stupid. I think it's stupid too. Because those people are like, oh my God, I can't believe who I was living next to. You probably have your own favorite fucking cam girl. But like for them to say that they didn't know who, like, they were sending their child, you know, over to, um, well, one, she's a solo cam girl. Literally, no one else is coming in. Yeah. You know, so there's no danger there, honey. Yeah, it's not like... Educate yourself. Yeah, it's literally no different than you having sex in your house when your kid's home. Right. Yeah. Anyway, this, I had heard about this a while back, and... Because of Corpsewood Manor, like, the sound of it just sounds like, oh, shit. Yeah. And then it's, like, not really, like, not, like, about, like, ghosts are everywhere. Yeah. And so it was, like, well, I don't know when I can do it. And then it's, like, wait, this is perfect. This is the perfect time. Yeah. Those poor guys. Yes. They didn't deserve that. No, they didn't. They really did not. They were just living their best mountain man life. They really were. They, I definitely don't want to live. Me either. God bless them. But no. more power to them. They were finally together. And I mean. No part of me wants to live without electricity. Oh my God. My house was without electricity a little bit. And I was like, uh, you want to go out and eat? Because uh, I don't want to be at home. The internet is down at my house right now. The fucking refrigerator went out and my garage door just opens randomly by itself and i feel like my world is crumbling i know (laughs) it's uh so yeah i don't know i watch alone and it's basically what they were doing but yeah no you know but these people they do it and they literally don't have anybody yeah and i'm like this one guy tapped out i don't know maybe third day i don't know and I was like, come on, the third day. Is it a little hot in here? God, man. Yeah. I to, you know, like, I'm like, the third day? Yes. Hmm. Or is it a little nipply? Let me get my comforter. Hold on. You know? Oh, these commercials are boring me. Let me fast forward here. Hold exactly. on. Exactly. <sighs> but yeah, I love, I love watching that. I think it's fascinating but um well i mean like those alaska mountain men and all those shows like that i mean they're they're a thing for a reason because people love the idea of being able to do what those two did but not me i'm not Mm -mm. smart enough to do it me neither i'd be like oh yeah i think this is something we could eat also me and carrie kill everything we touch plant wise so uh 
we'd be like, well, we out of crops for uh, forever. So, um, yeah, about that. Yeah. No, there's literally no way I would survive. Like, literally no way I would survive. All right. Not to have, like, a plug for Discord, but, like, a plug for Discord. We have, you know, that separate chat for episode suggestions. What? Well, you said plug, and you know what I thought about. A butt plug? Yeah. So this story suggestion came from Randy in that group chat. So we're going to travel, I guess, across the pond, but that way-ish, I don't fucking know, to Vienna, Austria. No hate to them, but every time I hear Vienna... You think of the sausage? Yes. Oh, And the little can. Yeah. And the gel that comes okay, on top. Okay, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, makes my stomach queasy. That's right up there with the R word for me. Really? Yes. That gelatinous goop oh, that just God. sticks okay. to your finger. <laughs> like, I am not joking. Sometimes it's white. Sometimes oh, I was going to say it's kind of off yellowy. <laughs> Sometimes it's yellow. <laughs> and they're kind of like, oh, God. Is your mouth watering? It's kind no, of dry. <laughs> the juice from the can sure would make it white. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, we're going to be talking about Natasha Marie Campush. Natasha was born February 17th of 1988. She lived in some public housing projects, kind of in the outskirts of the city. The neighborhood that she grew up in was a bit of a rough neighborhood, but the information that I found on her home life kind of seemed to be a little bit different. Like some stuff said that she had this great and wonderful home life where her mom was a little strict, but then some stuff said that her parents were a little abusive. But for the most part, it seems like her mom was just very strict. Her parents separated when she was really young. Her parents were polar opposites of one another. Her dad was more life of the party, like almost lived his life like a manic episode, like spent money, gambled, life of the party, go, 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 go. You know, his whole life was almost like a manic state. And Natasha would kind of get wrapped up in that. It was like she felt like she could go from being the center of attention to where if she disappeared, nobody would notice at all. Because if she traveled with her dad, they would go to these bars or, you know, just different places to eat with him, with his friends. And he'd be like, oh, here's my daughter, blah, blah, blah. Okay, then she'd go off by herself and he'd like hang out and eat and drink and hang out with his friends. And she's just sitting over there like, all right, well, guess I'll wait right here. You know, so when she first got there, it was like, Oh, hey, Natasha! And then kid over there by herself, just waiting, you know? Whereas her mom was the more responsible one. The dad had lost a lot of their money. Like, they almost lost their house, lost a lot of their money. And so I think that was a big part of the separation. So the mom was just more serious. You know, it was a rough neighborhood. She was trying to make ends meet. Single mom, doing the damn thing, trying to instill this safety mindset into Natasha, you know, do what you have to do to survive kind of thing, take care of yourself. But 
Natasha was kind of somewhere in the middle. She was a little meeker than both of them. She wasn't this hard ass of like her mom, but she wasn't this life of the party like her dad either. She had a really hard time in school. She got bullied a lot. She was more of like a wallflower. I think so. But, you know, she kind of stayed by herself a lot. You know, she was at home. She was an original creepster because she loved watching all the crime shows and all of that. Like, she just, you know, kind of stayed home, kind of did her own thing. Again, in her neighborhood, there was a lot of crime. And in Vienna, there was a lot of kidnapping starting as part of, like, a kind of a child sex ring. Shit. Yeah, and so... I think just like human trafficking in itself was starting to ramp up pretty big. I mean, it was late 80s going into the early 90s, you know. And so Natasha thought to herself that, okay, well, I'm not the typical kid that they would kidnap because she was a kid that was a little more on the chubby side. And so she really thought to herself, like, I'm not a kid that that they're going to kidnap because... Like, they're not going to take the chubby kid. They're going to take, like, the pretty, like, John Benet Ramsey, not me. How sad is that? But like, also, how many times have we said oh, that? Like, yeah. that's like, literally like a meme. Yes, but she's young and thinking that. Yes. You know, like, we're old and jaded. We can make fun of it like that. But she's young and thinking that. Yeah. And that's that just breaks my heart. Yeah. Well, one of the podcasts that I listen to said that she had a problem with wetting the bed. And at the time that this story takes place, she's 10 years old. They also say she's in middle school. And I'm like, 10 years old? That's like fourth and fifth grade. That's not middle school. I mean, you're almost there, I guess. But that's not that, I mean, that's not that that old. But it's pretty old for wetting the bed. But that's the only place I saw that. Like, I specifically even Googled her name and like wetting the bed. And I didn't find that information really anywhere. But, again, one of the podcasts I listened to mentioned it, so they had to have found it somewhere. And they talked about how she had to take an extra set of clothes with her to school just in case she had an accident as well. And so that just added on to more of her bullying. And so she just wasn't as independent as some of her peers You know, they were able to walk to school themselves, and her mom drove her to school because her mom was hyper-vigilant because of their neighborhood, and Natasha just wanted some more independence. Also, it was a pretty rough separation between her parents, and she had just gone on vacation with her dad, and look, her mom had very specific rules, and you know, whenever a kid goes with their parent for, let's say, the weekend... You know, and they've got to be back, let's say, Sunday by 6 p.m. Like, that's the court order. They have to be back Sunday by 6 p.m., period. And Natasha's mom was a, a stickler for what time she had to be back. She wanted her back before dark so that she was safe because she didn't want her. Because, again, she didn't want her out walking in the neighborhood, all of that, at night. So Natasha and her dad had been out of town They got back early enough for him to be able to take her back before dark, but he had been drinking, and so he was like, well, I'm going to take a nap first before I take you back. So they stopped, and he took a nap, and then by the time he took her back home, 
it was dark, and then he just, like, let her out at the front of their apartment complex for her to walk back to the apartment. And Natasha's like, cool, I got this. Like, I'm, I'm a big girl. I can do this. And when she gets home, her mom had gone, like, bowling or something with some of her friends, and so she wasn't home. So Natasha stayed next door, like, with a neighbor until her mom got home. Now, her mom was a stickler, and she wasn't I know, home? I know. I thought the same thing. Like. Right? <sighs> I know. Do as I say, not as I do. Uh-huh. So, when her mom got home, her mom was pissed that she wasn't home before dark. And misplaced anger. I know, girl. Misplaced anger took it out on Natasha that she wasn't home when it's, What's it? What's she gonna do? Be like, Dad, take me home. Dad, take me home. Dad, take me home. I mean, also Natasha, why you tell? How was she gonna know? Well, because she was at the neighbor's house. Like she, I don't know what time she left. She, but she knew. I mean, then she knew. Moms know. So they had gotten in because also it was a, it was a school night too. So it was like she got home late, school night, blah blah blah. You know, probably hadn't done her homework. I don't know all the things. So they got in an argument because Natasha's like, I want like more independence. Let me do things. Very Finding Nemo argument. <laughs> that didn't work out. Well, and Natasha's like, please, just please let me walk to school tomorrow. And she had walked to school a couple of times by herself. And some stuff I read said it was a quick, like a five minute walk because it was right down the road. Some stuff said it was a long walk, so I really have no idea how close the school was to her apartment, but most of the things said it was a close walk. So I'm going to go with like a five-minute walk. Unsure, though. But her mom finally agreed, but again, they ended the night in, a, in an argument. Like, they were mad at each other, basically. Because her mom misplaced her anger at the dad onto yeah. Natasha. Yeah. There's nothing a 10-year-old can do that's going to make her dad bring her home earlier. Right. It's, and he's drunk, so... Yeah, okay, you want him behind the wheel, or you want him to sleep it off? Right. On March 2nd, 1998, which was, again, the next morning, Natasha is going to do her independent walk to school. And look, her mom was one that was like, never leave, like, never go to bed, but never leave the house angry. Like, always say bye, always do the thing, you know. But Natasha was still mad at her, and she was like, I'm going to show her... I'm going to school, and I'm not going to say bye. And she leaves the house. She starts walking to school, and on her way there, there's a white minivan that she sees on the street that's, huh, that's weird. You know, and her mom always taught her to, when you see something like that that you don't really like, cross the street, walk away from it. Well, Natasha didn't cross the street and walk away from it. She tried to walk kind of around it, like what would be arm's length away so that the man that was standing by the van like couldn't touch her. They make eye contact and, you know, hey, kind of like, you know, what you know what you do just like, huh, yes, yeah, huh, huh, huh. Yeah. And as soon as she walks past him, it's like, whew, got past him. Okay. Do 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 and then all of a sudden arms grab her around the waist and the next thing she knows she's being pulled into the side door of the van oh gosh 
once she's in the van, the man who took her tells her to get down, crouched on the ground as he drives away. She's trying to kind of watch to see where they're going, and they're passing all these places that she knows, and she's thinking back to all the crime shows that she's watched going, okay, okay, get him talking. Got to get him talking. So she's just trying to get information from him. Like, okay, if she gets, if she does get out, what can she tell the police to help catch him? So she's like literally anything. Hey man, what's your shoe size? You know, and he's having none of it. Like literally she asks him what his shoe size is and he will not answer her. Well, he tells her that basically do what I say. I'm not going to hurt you. Like I'm not even the one that wants you. I've grabbed you for somebody else. So they drive off into this field. You know, he's like dialing phone numbers, like calling people, calling people, calling people. They drive off into this area and stop and wait a little while. He's calling people, calling people, calling people, acting like, oh, you know, kind of thing. And he gets back in. He's like, well, they're, I guess they're not coming. And so he pulls off and takes her to his house. Once they get there, it's clear that there was nobody else. That this was very much so planned because the man takes her into a hidden cellar at his house. To get to this cellar, there was a trap door in the garage, just like a little like door. You had to go through this like trap door in the garage and you had to go through like three different sets of doors and like, you know, one of the doors would have stuff propped up on it like a tire or this or that propped up on it so you couldn't even see it and it would be like a hidden safe basically in the wall you know and then one of the doors is like a 330 pound steel door what the fuck and i love that he had to get his you know acting chops going when he's like i don't even want you hold on Deep, boop 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 Oh, God, they're not coming. I'm just going to have to take you home. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, hold on, let's go through my maze. Not sponsored by the Nationwide Doop 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 you did. <laughs> <laughs> when you know you're in a cult. No. <laughs> Tell me you're in a cult without telling me you're in a cult. Yes. So once you got past this 300-pound door, it was a... 54 square foot room, which is, stole this information from one of the podcast or YouTube videos I listened to, not going to lie, but smaller than a standard U.S. jail cell. Shit. That's like 72 feet, because it's like seven by eight, or that's 56 feet. You could lie to me. Nine by nine. Nine by nine. Nine by nine. Nine by nine. That's 81 feet. Anyway. Okay, well, bad math. I don't say. Anyway, according to them, they said that's smaller than a standard U.S. jail cell. (laughs) You had me. I'm like, oh, that's small. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Picture like my your bathroom here, like my bathroom that you use here, my bathroom. Oh shit! Maybe a little wider. Damn. Yeah. So in this cellar, though, because you know underground. No windows. Also, no lights. There was a ventilation system, so, you know, she could breathe. And... I was going to say, he could have installed some lighting. Fuck. 
No, he well, yeah, he could have. That's what I'm saying. He could have. But he's an asshole douchebag that we hate. So, mm-hmm. well, this ventilation system eventually sucked, and it just was like, <laughs> but it made a lot of racket. And so it was just like this noise, just a constant noise that would never fucking stop. You know, you, you can't get away from it. So just think like, you know, when you have that aggravating noise that you're like, what the fuck is that? Make it stop. This never stopped. This isn't the same, but it reminds me of when my mama was alive and her breathing machine that I can't make the noise, but that noise mm-hmm. It was all the time, like everywhere. I could hear it everywhere. It became part of my daily life. And then when she was gone, it was like. It's so quiet. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? I don't hear it. Like, and it, what? It, like, it was like, it became ambient noise. Yeah. <laughs> but this is annoying noise. Yeah. Well, when they first got there, because keep in mind, Natasha was on her way to school. So she had her backpack with her, and he took her backpack from her and her shoes. And she was like, can I please keep my backpack? Like, that's all she had, you know? And he was like, no, you can't have it. You could have a transmitter in there. And she's like, what? Okay, sir. 1998, <laughs> there ain't no damn transmitters. <laughs> she didn't have an iPhone in there with Find Your Friends, Life 360. She don't right. have that up in there. Oh, my gosh. You stole her, sir. Like, yeah, but even still, it's not like, again, like yeah. right now, I could ping your iPhone and right. find you. Yeah. Because I know, oh, I could probably figure out your Apple ID login and find my yeah. iPhone. You know, whereas it's fucking 1998. What's yeah. she got? A CB radio? <laughs> no. Breaker, breaker, one nine. The fuck are you, Natasha? <laughs> no. Dumb. So he takes her backpack, he takes her shoes. Why he takes her shoes and burns them, unsure. People are going to recognize her footprints from her shoes. I don't know. And he leaves her in this tiny, dark, damp, noisy cellar. Also, the room was soundproof. Duh. Because, duh. Well, bless her heart. She is so nervous and trying to figure this out. And a 10-year-old who's scared out of her mind... The first night that she's kidnapped there, she asks him to tuck her in and kiss her goodnight. Oh, gosh. Which is a little weird. Yeah. (laughs) But also, like... Yeah, she's that innocent and that... Yeah, like, she's she's not very mature for her age, I don't think. No. But then on the flip side, like, there's some stuff that she does, I'm like, damn, you're real mature for your age, you know? Yeah. Which I guess is a 10-year-old for you. Yeah. I mean, I'd already started my period at 10, so here we are. Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> but you know what I mean? No, but I'm saying, like, that's like, I hate you right now. Don't use my thing on me. But, you, like, that's the, that's the, like, difference of a 10-year-old. Like, you, you're so immature, but yet you could be so mature. Yeah. Yeah. So, at this point, her mom's come home from work and knows that Natasha didn't come home from school. And she's like, um, nope. I'm sorry. They didn't call her mama and say, your daughter is not in school today? They Maybe they don't do that in Austria. I don't know that all schools do that. And I don't think that ours did that back in 98. Yes, they did. Did they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yes, they, they did. did. Yeah, they did. Anyway, okay. So 
she notices she didn't come home from school. And so the first thing that she does is call the school to say, hey, Natasha's not home yet. She's never late from school. Like, what's going on? And they're like, um, she, didn't, she didn't come to school today. And she immediately calls police because she knows something is wrong. Police respond and get all of her information. And they start to look and just figure out what the heck happened. They know she walked to school that day. And they're just trying to figure out what happened. But they're coming up empty-handed because it's really like she vanished without a trace. I mean, there's nothing to indicate where she went while she was walking to school because she never made it there. So time continues to pass. And after Natasha's been there for a few days, the guy who kidnapped her would bring her snacks, bring her books. He asked her, like, is there anything you need? And she was like, I need a toothbrush. And, you know, just like a hairbrush, like told him the necessities because she had a sink and a toilet down there. So he was coming down to see her often, but she didn't know anything about him. She didn't know his name. She didn't know if he had a job. She didn't know... Does anybody else live here? You know, what? what is this place? So she asks him, like, what, like, what's your name? You know, she's trying to get information out of him. One day, he finally hands her his business card, and she sees that his name is Wolfgang Prickafil. Fitting. I know. So Wolfgang worked basically as a laborer, contractor-type construction job, like remodeling stuff. And so that's how he was so good uh-huh. to be able to build this fucking underground dungeon for right. her. And he would miss work a lot so that he could spend time with Natasha. Wolfgang would, like I said, bring her different gifts. He would bring her books, a desk for the area, which I don't know how the fuck he got it in there. Schlepped it down some stairs through 16 doors, and one of the doors is 330 pounds. That seems like a lot, but whatever. Meanwhile, the first night she had to use her jacket as a pillow, but okay, priorities. And, you know, just would like bring her candy and just all these great gifts. But then the gifts started changing. He brought her like mouthwash and scotch tape, like weird stuff like that but she was just like i'll take anything like thanks for bringing me something you know it was all a mind game of course it was a way it was he was trying to win her over but he would tell her though that nobody was looking for her you know typical like ariel castro bullshit nobody's looking for you nobody wants you nobody loves you to beat her down but then would also bring her gifts so that she would love him it was like classic manipulation type things He would often hold over her head if she did things that he didn't like. You know, if you do this, then I'm going to let those guys come and take you kind of thing. So he would still hold it over her head that, oh, well, there's these other people who really do want you and I'm saving you. So if you don't act right, I'm going to come let them take you and they're going to like sell you for sex to be a sex slave kind of thing. So it was, again, a mind fuck. And then he'd be like, well, here's a gift. See, I'm saving you. I'm good kind of thing. Well, eventually, she was having such a hard time because she's in this dark cellar with no no daylight, no nothing. So she has no concept of time. So she doesn't know what's up and what's down. And so he wants her to sleep when he wants her to sleep. 
so he eventually installed some lights. And he put them on a timer so that he could have her up when he wanted her up. And, you know, very, like, Big Brother-ish. I was about to say, what is this, Big Brother? Right. And, again, there were all these things that he wanted done a certain way. But she didn't know what they were until she did it wrong. And even then, she didn't necessarily know what she did wrong. She just knew, okay, I did something that he didn't like. And she would get punished. She would get something taken away. Or she would get less food or or whatever. And remember how I was saying that, you know, she was this chubbier kid and how she was like, oh, I'll never get kidnapped because, you know, I'm a chubby kid. Like, nobody's going to kidnap me, right? Well, he clearly did kidnap her, but he also had this ideal in his head of what he wanted her to look like, and it wasn't chubby. And so he would make comments about, like, what she would eat or how much she would eat. And so he would like ration her food and would pretend like he was going to give her this plate full of food and then give her like one bite from it. What? Mm -hmm. And then be like, you've had enough. You don't need to eat anymore. You've had plenty. And so she would get to the point where she was literally starving in the truest sense of, actual starvation where she would just drink as much water from her sink as she could to try to make her belly not hungry because she's literally starving. Well, after she had been there for six months. Six months? Yes. With this up, down, lights on when he wants it, hasn't been outside, she tells him, I just want to take a bath. That's all I want. I just want a bath. She hasn't bathed. In the, her sink, she's bathed. Okay. But not like a shower, a bath. Yeah. You know, but yeah. she's like spit bath in the sink. Yeah. So she's telling him, all I want is a bath. Please, please, please just take me and let me take a bath. Like, please just let me, ta- just take me into your house. Like, I promise I'm not going to run. I promise I'm not going to do anything. All I want is a bath. And then I'll come right back down here. Like, please. And It took a little while to convince him, but she finally convinced him. And he told her, if you scream, like, I'm going to kill you. If you try to run, like, I have every window and door has an alarm on it. If you open it, the alarm's going to sound, and it's, like, loaded down with explosive devices. So if you open it, it's going to blow up, and it's going to kill us and the people in the houses next to us. No pressure. Right. So she's like, okay, okay. Can't. So she's like, for sure fucking not going to run, right? Right. But she's also like, oh, yes, I get to see sunlight. Oh, my God, I get sunlight. Well, when he takes her into the house, he has all of the drapes pulled, all of the all the things. So she gets, like, no sunlight from that either. Uh. And she's like, okay, it's okay. I'm getting my bath. It's fine. Like, whew, you know. Yeah. But then it was weird because she got the bath, but it was like that showed him that he could start bringing her into the house. Uh huh. That also changed the dynamic a little bit too because then he started bringing her in for baths and he bathed her. Mmm, icky. Yeah. 
So he starts bringing her into the house more and more so that she can start doing things around the house for him. Of course. Basically, a live-in maid. Mm-hmm. A slave. A sex slave. A slave slave? <laughs> what do you call it? Like, uh, uh, like a slave in every sense of the yeah. word. A domestic slave. Yes. And at first, it was just like, okay, clean my kitchen, dust, you know, like, but then it became hard labor stuff. Like, okay, now we're going to remodel this room kind of stuff. Stuff that she's, this 11-year-old at the time, like, doesn't fucking know how to do. Wow. And then if she would not clean it up to his specifications or, because he was, okay, so he was very, very weird. In particular? Yes. And had a thing with hair. Like, hated hair. Didn't want hair on his floor. Didn't want hair on his furniture. So he, like, would tie her hair up in this really tight, like, wrapping and then, like, wrap it in a bag and, like, tape it down so that no hair would come out. And it was painful Mm -hmm. for her. Yeah. And he eventually, like, convinced her to just, like, shave her head so hair would not fall out onto his floor, onto his furniture. Yeah. he's so weird about hair. The other thing is that he started having her clean the house, like, barely wearing any clothes, too. Of course. So let's kind of leave them and then go back to the police investigation. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Well, a lot of bit, because, you know, we're six months in in their timeline. But I'm going to back up a couple of weeks after Natasha went missing. You know, the police are at a standstill, but they get a tip from a little girl that was walking to school that says, hey, I actually saw her get pulled into a white van. Oh, gosh. And they're like, what? Shit. Because, you know, they were like looking at the mom. They're like, you know, what's going on? But then they're like, no, this is like like a stranger abduction. Like, this is like a fucking like kidnapping. So they start looking at all of these people with white vans. But it gets released to the news that they're looking at people with white minivans. That it's so hard because it's they have to do it because that helps, you know. Right. Like, hey, be on the lookout, bolo on a white minivan. Right. But also the people who have the white minivan that did the shit know now. Exactly. So what does old Wolfgang do? He goes and cleans his van and then because he does the construction stuff, he puts a fuck ton of construction stuff in there. Like rocks and, you know, like... I was going to say cement. Yeah, like create grit and grime, uh-huh. you know, like puts shit in there. Yeah. So the police end up looking at 800 minivans. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, white ones. And his was one of them. So the police interview him, and they're like, hey, like, you got a white minivan. What's up? Where were you? Let me see your van. And he says, oh, I was at home alone watching TV. What you talking about? I wasn't anywhere. And they're like, anybody can corroborate that? And he's like, no. And they're like, all right, let me see in your van. And, you know, he opens it up, and there's all this shit in there. And the police are like, um kind of just like glance over it like I do when I don't feel like shopping somewhere. I don't see anything. Okay, close the doors. Bye. Yeah, like, uh, he couldn't kidnap anyone with all this shit in there. Nah, okay. Yeah. So they move on and, you know, look through the 799 other ones. Yeah. 
So then a little while after that, the police get another tip from a caller that says, hey, I have this neighbor. And they give the neighbor's address and they don't give the neighbor's name because they don't know it. But they say, he's really weird. I think he's into kids. He drives a white van. Like, he's really sketch. You know, gives a couple of other details of, like, why they think it's him. I really think you really need to look into him kind of thing. And then when police check out that tip, it's Wolfgang. And so, again, they go to his house. But the house that the caller gave the address for is actually... Wolfgang's mother's house because like he lives there but because it's in her name he's considered like a guest and since it's not his house they're like oh well it's not his house like it's you know okay bye and that was it what uh-huh big mistake huge, huge. yeah this was eight days into her being missing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so back to them at the house. So at this point, Natasha's going into the house regularly to cook, clean, literally anything that Wolfgang wants her to do. And he's keeping control of her through the things he says to her. Like, he belittles her. Nobody loves you. Nobody wants you. I rescued you. You know, he makes her say things like, you rescued me, you saved me. He makes her repeat it to him. He forces her, again, to work and breaks her down that way through the physical labor. And then, you know, picks her back up through the gifts and all of that. But then also breaks her down through food, too. Because he has control of her, of what she eats and what she doesn't eat. And like I said, he's rationing out her food And, you know, she'll cook him these meals and, like, he'll pretend like he's going to let her eat it with him and then he won't. Or, you know, stuff like that. And so it's just, it's all this mind game where he's having control of her. Eventually, it turned into physical abuse, too. He would beat her sometimes 200 times a week. 200 times? Sometimes he would beat her so much it was hard for her to stand up. Oh my gosh. But then he wants her to clean. Exactly. And do all of that when she's so physically weak from hunger. The beatings would be so bad that sometimes instead of him beating her, she would beat herself. Like she would start punching herself in the face. So he would be like, stop, stop, stop. And then he wouldn't beat her. But then he would do things like make her just run the stairs for like an hour without stopping. Oh, hell no. But he would make her because he would beat her. And then again, remember, she's doing that with no food. Mm -mm. And so it's just this physical and emotional torture. And there was some sexual assault in there as well. Mm -hmm. But it was more for him. It was more companionship. So there would be more, like, cuddling. Of course, there was sexual assault. But it would be more, like, cuddling and that type of thing. Because Mm -hmm. his end game with this was that he wanted them to get married. Her to eventually submit to a point where they got married and lived happily ever after. Right. 
eventually she was allowed to go outside into the garden. And it was even where they would have breakfast together like every morning. Now, again, her portions rationed. Him, probably a fucking Shoney's buffet. Why you have to... Oh, God, a Shoney's buffet. That melted cheese, though. Mm. He did give her, like I said, books, but she had TV and radio. And she would choose specific programming to kind of keep up her schooling. And he would even get her books to help her. And then he would, like, make math tests for her because she would ask him to. But then, no matter how well she did on it, he would mark on it so much with red ink just to fuck with her, you know? Wow. Also, she's so much better than I would be because I would be like, well, the only up here I could see is no more school. Like, and I, I wouldn't want that. But, you know... She's trying to remain hopeful. She's trying to go, okay, I'm going to get out of this. And, you know, she's 10 when she gets kidnapped. So it's like, okay, well, I'm, these are some crucial fucking years in school. Like, you got to fucking learn shit. And so. Well, it would not be math. I will tell you that. Well, true. So, you know, she's doing the best she can because she's, again, she's just trying to give herself a goal. She's trying to stay positive and she never let herself hate Wolfgang, because she felt like if she allowed herself to hate him, she could never see both sides of him and that she would stay angry and then it would always, like it would get her in more trouble and it would make it harder on her in the long run there. So she would try to see the good sides of him because it wasn't always bad for her. Yeah. You know, again, he would do nice things like, oh, here's a book, beat her and then give her, I mean, it was like, a classic abuse cycle and then it would be yeah. something terrible followed by something to try to win you back kind of thing. You can't be 100% bad to groom someone. Exactly. You know, so we know he had those moments when even if it wasn't in his heart genuine, he played it well. Right. Another way that he would fuck with her too is that he installed an intercom system So he could always talk to her and hear what she was doing. And he could, like, fuck with her at all hours of the night. If she's sleeping, wake her up. You know, it was just, I mean, it was literally torture. Because she had sounds that were torture. But she was also, like, in this sensory deprivation chamber almost. Where she was, especially until she started coming out more into the house. But, you know, it was like even she regressed a little in her cognition, you know, because she had been so deprived of sensory input that it was, I mean, which is, I mean, that's a thing. Like, that's proven that people, when they have that sensory deprivation, they will regress. So with the intercom, he would, he could be like, boop, you're a worthless piece of shit. Bloop, nobody wants you. Bloop, uh, I'm, you know, I blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Like, he could do whatever he wanted. And then it was two-way, so he could hear everything she was doing. You're breathing too loud. You're doing this. You're doing, you know, like that he would tell her everything. Like, you know, you need to get up and walk. You have been sitting too long. You need to, you know, he like, because he could listen. And so that was a mind fuck for her, too. She's like, does he have cameras in here? Like, you know, what the fuck is going on? Like, how does he know all this stuff? And so she would, like, if there was, like, a crevice in the wall, you know, she would, like, put toothpaste and stuff over it thinking that he could see her. Golly. And then if he went to work, he would put these headphones over the intercom so that it would give this feedback sound. 
Oh, fuck. Over the intercom. And she'd have to hear that the whole time he was at work. Now that's some shit. Yes. So that's why I say, like, I mean, it was torture. Yes. Well, one day she was like, can, can we please, can I just write, look, I wrote this letter to my family. Will you please give it to them? You can read it. You can read it. Look, I didn't write anything about you. There's nothing in there to give anything away about you. Like, like you can read it and approve it before you send it. Like, please send this to my family. It took some convincing, but finally he agreed. So he took the letter, which of course he ditched. He threw it away, burned it, whatever the fuck he did. Never saw the light of day. And then he came back and told her that basically gave the family the letter, like requesting a ransom, and they refused it because they didn't want her. Oh my God, piece of shit. After Natasha had been kidnapped for a few years. 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 He had groomed her to the point where she was so fearful of him that he was able to start, you know, taking her away from the house. Well, yeah. So, you know, she had, since she'd been able to go inside the house, she'd been able to go inside the, like, outside into the garden area. And then he needed some help because he was getting some, I don't know, reno shit for a house. And, like, he needed, like, manpower. He was, oh, he's getting a trailer. That's what it was. He's borrowing a trailer from a friend. And she went with him to get it. And, of course, he's put the fear of God in her of, you mm-hmm. do anything, and I'm going to kill you and this guy that we're going to meet. And this was one of his friends. Right. And, you know, they go, and he introduces her to this guy. Like, you know, this is, I don't even know who he says. I, honestly, I don't know who he says that she is. But, you know, they shake hands, and, you know, she's kind of trying to give him some eyes, but not really, because she also doesn't want to die or him to die or whatever, you know. Right, yeah. But she is, she's a survivor, so she's still always plotting in mm-hmm. her head. And that guy ends up getting a call, and he has to go. So he's like, hey, y'all, like, y'all got this. I got to go. But y'all cool? Y'all cool? Okay, I got to go. Bye. So it was like a quick meeting, but like he took her, and they met someone, you know. After her birthday... When she had been in captivity for eight years. Eight years. Yes. After her 18th birthday. Her whole childhood gone. Yes. He took her to a ski resort. And he told her, like, if you, again, same thing, you do fucking anything, I'm going to kill fucking everybody. And at one point, I'm fuzzy on when this happened, but it was... At some point, they had even gone through like a police checkpoint, like a like a roadblock, and she was like going to try to get this police officer's attention, and like he never like looked at her, and so she was never able to be like help me, you know. So it was just like all these missed opportunities, you know. God. And then when they were at this ski resort thing on holiday. Just like when they were at home, he was up her ass. Like, he'd never left her side. I mean, inches away from her. It was constant beside her. Until they were out and about, and she had to go to the bathroom. Oh, shit. And he's like... What the fuck? 
panicking. Like, uh-huh. she's got to go to the bathroom. What do I do? Because I will have no control of her in the bathroom. Yeah. So he tells her, like, hey, you do anything. You know the drill. I'm going to kill everybody. So she goes to the bathroom. And when she's about to leave the bathroom, a woman walks in. And she tells the lady, I need help. But the lady's not a native and doesn't speak the language. Oh, my gosh. And she has no idea what she's saying. And so she just leaves the bathroom defeated. I just want to cry at this point. Yes. So they go home from the holiday and go back to life the way it was. She's in the dungeon, but up to breakfast, living her life as his slave, cleaning basically in next to nothing clothes, doing whatever he wants her to do. Still constantly trying to figure out how she's going to escape. Well, one day on August 23rd, 2006, Wolfgang is going to sell his car. And so he tells her, vacuum out my car. So she's out there vacuuming it. <laughs> God. You know, doing her thing, cleaning his car. And he gets a phone call. Well, you know, she's being noisy with a vacuum cleaner. So he has to step away to take the call. As he steps away, she goes, he didn't close the garden gate. He's over there on the phone. And she's like paralyzed, but knows like, this is fucking it. This is not going to happen again. This is my chance. It's now or never. And she's like, but I can't leave him. But I have to, but I can't. You know, and she's like wrestling with herself like, I can't, I can't leave him. I mean, she's just spent eight years with him, all of her formative years. You know, she's like, yeah, can't leave him. But yet she's like, no, I have to leave him. You know, she tells herself, if you were kidnapped yesterday, if you had been taken yesterday, you would be saying, fuck him and you'd be leaving right now. So fucking run. Yeah. And she has the vacuum noise. Like, right. So exactly. he's like, oh yeah, she's still vacuuming. She's still vacuuming. Exactly. So... She leaves the vacuum running, and she fucking takes off running. Oh, my God. She runs up on a group of three people, and she tells them, like, blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm running from him. I need to, please call the, like, I need to call the police. And they say they don't have a phone, and they just walk away. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I can't blame them. I know, I know. But, but you, like, want to get so mad. So she runs to this house, and she's banging on the door, and nobody's fucking home. Oh, my God. I, I can't, again, I can't blame them because I have to be those people. Like, I'd be like, Ee! I mean. But keep in mind, she's, like, starving. She's thin. She's emaciated. You know, she is, like. Yeah. That is not, like, a thin shaming. Like, no, she's, like, I, I needs to, I, she needs to eat. Yeah. So she can see like across that there is this lady in a house. She can see her walking through the windows, but she's got to like Peeping keep on. running and like leap over a fence to get to this lady. So she's running, jumps this fence, Seven starts Lords a leaping. banging on this lady's door. And she's like, please call the cops. And this lady is like, who the fuck are you on my property? Like it's so mad at first. And she's like, call the police. I need help. I need help. So the lady calls the police and they show up. And she tells them, like, who she is and what's going on. And they're like, are you fucking serious? Like, holy shit. You're who? Right. You're Natasha? Wait, what? It's been eight years. And this lady's like, what? Right. So. I wanted to help her all this time. Right. I knew who she was when she banged on the door. <laughs> I welcomed her in with lemonade. Right. <laughs> 
So the police, of course, take her to protect her. Right. And by this time, Wolfgang has realized, like, fuck, she's gone. Yeah. So he calls his buddy and is like, come get me. So his friend comes and picks him up, and they drive around the city for, like, three hours. And he tells his friend everything. Tells him that his goal was to have her fall in love with him. He wanted to get married. Like, he was planning on them spending the rest of their life together. That he had the... I mean, like, tells him everything. The next part's unclear. One thing said that the friend took him back to his house. One thing said that he took him to this train station. I am sorry, but uh, if you told me, Donna, I kidnapped this 10-year-old. And kept her for eight years. Eight years. I'd have taken your ass to the fucking police station. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I would have been like, okay, okay, okay. I'll take it to the train station. But uh, I'd be like trying to dial 911, doing something like, oh, man, we got stopped by a train on the way. Yeah, oh, I'd be like, shit. oh, wait, I got to get gas first. Uh-huh. Like, I'd be doing all I could right. to do it to get them to have to track us down, do right. something exactly to get that. So, either way, Wolfgang ends up at the train station. Wow. He ends up laying his head on the railroad tracks, waiting for a train to come by. And dies by suicide. Oh my goodness. I will say a couple of things did say that he jumped in front of a train. But I also did see that he literally just laid on the tracks and waited for a train to come by. So when Natasha went missing, in her backpack she had her passport because she had just gotten back from that vacation with her dad. Because they had gone out of the country. So... When they initially were doing the search for her, they were looking at the surrounding... Because, you know, everything's so close over there. They're looking at the surrounding... <laughs> you know, it's not like us going to Canada from South Mississippi. You know uh, what I mean? Okay. Shh, I hate you right okay. now. So, <laughs> really everything's hate, so close over there. You, you can really, just basically walk to Germany. I really hate you right now. <laughs> so... They were looking at, like, the surrounding countries, though, to uh-huh. see if she had been taken because she did have her passport. Yeah. Well, through DNA testing and her passport being at his house, they were able to confirm that she is who she says she is. And when Natasha found out that Wolfgang had died by suicide, she was crushed. Oh, I bet. She wept. She went and lit a candle for him. She mourned for him. I bet. She was destroyed. I mean, like, heartbroken. I bet she felt so guilty, and that's so sad. You know, because, like you said, she was saying, I can't leave him. Right. And then she did, and now he's died by suicide, and she's like, it's because of me. No, none of this is because of you. Right. This is literally all his doing. Well, and, you know, he told his friends and all, he was like, I'm, I mean, like, I'm not going to jail. Like, I'm not doing this. Like, it was his plan all along. Like, if he was caught, he was going to die by suicide. And the police, when they were looking through all of his stuff, they found that he was already in the process of getting fake documents so that he could marry her. And... When Natasha escaped, 
she was 5'9", height-wise. So she had only grown 15 centimeters in the eight years that she had disappeared. And she had only gained three kilograms. So she was 5'9", like 105 pounds when she was found. Holy shit. Which for her body, especially if you see pictures and stuff of her now, for her body frame, that is incredibly like gaunt, thin, you know. Because Wolfgang died, she actually got his house in his estate. Dang! Right. And she still has it to this day. So she didn't want to sell it because she said she didn't want it to be turned into like an amusement park or a museum and people to be buying tickets to go down into the cellar where she spent so many years of her life and tortured. A.K.A. Zach Bagans. Right. So she has a house and she eventually did fill the cellar up with concrete and all, like, all the way up to the garage opening, and now it just has, like, you can see the concrete where it is filled up to, and it has 2011 written on it. But I never saw the significance of the 2011. So if you know what that is, let me know. Unless maybe that's when one of her books came out, because she does have two books. The first one is called 3,096 Days in Captivity, and the other one is called 10 Years of Freedom. Maybe 2011 is when she filled it in. Ha- that has to be it. But okay, so there, there's some, con- there's a lot of conspiracies. Ooh. But also in that 3,096 days in captivity, she goes into way more detail, obviously, than I do. So if you want to know more about her ordeal, read the book for sure. But she also does not go into a lot of the sexual stuff. And we're going to obviously respect her wishes on that. But, I mean, plus we just don't fucking know it because she doesn't tell us because she doesn't want us to know. There is a conspiracy going around, like, right now that she actually had a baby while she was in captivity. And that it's, like, buried in the backyard, the baby. And that people are saying that her mom and the police are all in on this because they, like, looked over it. Because the police fucked up. Big time. Like, big, big, big time. Although, even if they had gone in the house, they would have never known to go in that hatch and find all those hidden doors and then open... Like, I seriously doubt, even if they had found that door in the garage, I don't think that they would have kept on and kept on and kept on going into that cellar. Right. Anyway. Right. But people are saying that they have, like, taken dogs and stuff on that property that are supposed to be able to smell remains and that they hit on the alleged buried fetus and that they ignored it because they're like all in on it. That is legitimately all a conspiracy theory. Like I'm not giving that any, like I don't think that that's true. But but then it also is kind of like, well, she hasn't sold the house. You know, it's also like, you know, like you're kind of like, well, has she not sold the house because that's like her child's grave, you know? But again, that's like literally all hearsay, and there's nothing to back that up. But she isn't she isn't selling the house because she said she doesn't want it to be, like I said, she doesn't want it to be some fucking museum where people come and it's this, she doesn't want it to be a tourist attraction because it was a torture chamber for her. But it's interesting that 
she doesn't just keep the house. She still stays in the house sometimes. Like, a few nights a week. And she still goes and cleans the house the same way that Wolfgang wanted it cleaned. Really? Yeah. I saw one article that talked about how, like, she's, like, still not married because she's in her 30s now, which, okay. But, and she said something like, she can't go anywhere with a man without people being like, oh, she's found love and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, and she talked about, like, how hard it is to trust and and all yeah. of that. But she also gets incredibly, from the interview that I saw, she gets very defensive when you bring up Stockholm Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Because she basically says, like, you're re-victimizing me is how she feels. And so, I don't know. It feels like, I'm no psychologist, but it feels like because she's not recognizing that she's not dealt with a lot Mm -hmm. of trauma if she's she's literally still reliving it yeah going and staying there a couple of nights a week and cleaning the house the way that he wanted it it's like i think it's like mostly all still the same and you know there wasn't much i know her mom just not too well i don't know how long ago but went to court to ha- and and Natasha had to testify basically on her behalf because some politician was trying to say oh she was involved again all this conspiracy shit and this politician was trying to be like see see she was involved they even had Natasha's dad testify because he was like well i mean she did call the police before she called me to see if i had her but i mean that's it you know but yeah. Natasha had to be like no it was just Wolfgang. Like, there was nobody else involved. And her mom was cleared. But, of course, it made headlines of, Uh like, that her mom went to trial, basically, over it. But I do want to say that the friend that took him either home or train station or wherever did get sentenced to, like, two years in jail for um, obstruction of some sort. Yeah, well, good. Right. Like, he came clean to you about... Like, a serious thing. Yeah. Like. But Natasha, like I said, has written two books. She's done countless interviews. She's, like, the spokesperson for PETA there. And, you know, she's trying her best to make it through and cope with the life that she has now. Well, we wish her the best. Absolutely. Eight years, man. And, like, deprived. Like, not always, but for a good bit of that in this, like, sensory deprivation chamber, basically. Yeah. Sorry. But then also in a, like, auditory torture chamber, too, though. Because yeah. he would get on the intercom and say terrible things to her, but then create all these sounds with this fucking ventilation system that was jacked and then with the headphones and the intercom system and you know all of that i was just gonna say think about when you come out of a theater Uh uh-huh you know and it's daylight and it's so jarring and my eyes i'm like like seriously the whole walk to my car which is not that long let me just tell you but i am like i cannot see it's it is too bright out here well, and just think about, like, your whole circadian rhythm is off, too, because yeah. you don't know if it's daylight, if it's dark, if it's what, you know. And yes. then 
So she sleeps, and then he gets pissed that she's sleeping, and it's like, well, fuck, she doesn't know what's day and what's night. What right. the fuck do you want her to do? And hell, going to a movie at noon, I know it's noon. Mm-hmm. My stomach is like, hey, bitch, I'm ready to eat after this. After, you know, that large popcorn and that drink, I'm still hungry. And Reese's Pieces that I get because I know she doesn't like them. Ding! Mm-hmm. Or, or um, Milk Duds. <laughs> but I know I'm still hungry, but I go out, and I'm like, it's daylight? You know, uh-huh. like, after I can, I'm like, oh, right, what? It's not dark? And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I know. Mm-hmm. But I don't, like, my body doesn't know because it's so fucking dark inside. So I I don't even know how she, her body handled that. Even, like, doing it when she would clean, you know? know? Oh, gosh. I, I oh, She is so strong. Yes. She really is. Well, and even, like, I didn't find much on her reconnection with her parents either, though. Like, I did find where they reconnected, but it's not like her parents are at these interviews with her. Or, you know, I, I don't know. Well, you know, honestly, they didn't have a great relationship. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. I just hope. probably like, fuck them. I know. But, but I just, you remember how with Ariel Castro, Michelle Knight, like, she just broke her heart so much because... Even when she escaped, she still had no one. Like, it was... And she was trying to figure this out and do it all by herself when Amanda Berry and Gina DeJesus had people. Yeah. And she was still trying to figure it out for herself. And, you know... Yeah. And I just don't want that for Natasha. And I just hope that it's not that way for her. Yeah. Unless she wants it that way. And if she wants it that way... More power to you, girl. You do what you, you know. You do what's best for your mental health. But I hope you have the support system that you need and that you want. Yeah. Well, these were I feel like two pretty heavy stories. So y'all take the mental health break that y'all need after these stories, right? You know what? I was just thinking both stories. Charles Scudder, he wanted this life in the woods. This was going to be. His and Joseph's, you know, like, dream life, and it wasn't. And Natasha wanted her independence, wanted to walk to school by herself. She could do it. And the one day that her mom let her do it, you know, after their huge fight, she got kidnapped. You know, their dreams became their undoing. But luckily, Natasha survived. Well, way to bring us down right here at the fucking end. <laughs> Stump on all of our dreams, why don't you? <laughs> don't dream. Jesus. Well, now that Donna really fucking brought down the house, uh, we all really do need a mental break. And, I don't know, maybe make a vision board or something since she destroyed our dreams. Am I supposed to apologize here? In your dreams? Oh, my God. On that note, we're getting the fuck up out of here. Thank y'all so much for listening to us and supporting us. More importantly, remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.